The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 41, Doctor Who, Series 12 Review, Part 2. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And tonight we're doing the second part of our Series 12 Review, Jodie Whittaker's second season as Doctor Who. Yes, indeed. Now, we've already done episodes one to six, so without prejudicing in any way, uh, shall we start with episode seven? What do we think? Are we missing something? Oh, health, Steve, yes. Because if I'm going to discuss episode ten, I definitely need Jim. Tonic screwdriver out. What have we got for tonight? Tonight, we have an Edinburgh gin, and we've got the Edinburgh Small Batch Seaside Gin. And it says that it's distilled in the shadow of Edinburgh Castle. Seaside Gin encapsulates the unique flavour profile of foraged ingredients from our Scottish coastline with ground ivy, bladder rack, seaweed, and scurvy grass, lending a fresh mineralistic <laughs> quality and a slight salinity. <laughs> Slightly worried by anything that's got the word scurvy in it. Yeah, I was just going to say scurvy grass doesn't sound particularly appealing. Um, but that aside, I think it's lovely. It's a standard gin, is what I would class as a standard gin. There's no flavours to it as such. But that's bloody good. It's not sharp and it doesn't leave a, a bite afterwards. It's very smooth to drink. I'm going to give that a four. Yeah, I mean, you can taste a sort of slight salty seaside tang. Actually, now that I have another, yes, you can. I think that's very nice. I think that's definitely four-worthy. Mm. Edinburgh gins tend to be quite satisfying. I don't think we've had a bad one of theirs yet. Oh, there was the, hon- was the honeybee. No, that was Warren. No, Edwards, that was Warren Edwards. Mm. Um, so now that you've then... got your pre-antidote, let's launch into episode seven, the name of which I cannot remember. Can you hear me? With the to immortals, one trapped in a bubble, one not. And they, the one outside the bubble trick, tricks the doctor into letting the one inside the bubble out, and then they go and steal people's dreams I it was quite liked it i quite liked it because i thought that the the eternals um or whatever they were alluded to being they actually were portrayed as being quite powerful the doctor for once was lost at sea there was no real way out my only disappointment was that she effectively beat them with a wave of the sonic screwdriver in the end which is and a I am getting bit of really quite egg. sick of the fact that everything she doesn't know, she waves the sonic screwdriver about it and, over it, and it's a massive plot info dump. We never used to have this. I mean, the sonic's been heavily used since 2005, but it's never been but used as an ultimate resolution. It's always been a tool rather than a tricorder, which is what it's become. Yeah. It's wave it in the vague direction and you get every bit of information you could possibly need on a little screen. That's a tricorder. And the sonic screwdriver was never about that. It was about giving bits of information that could be interpreted, not, there you go, there's the plot on the screen. Yeah. It was a pity, really, because the two guest actors, whose names I can't remember, I remember him from Children of Earth. He was the caretaker in that. Um, So he was. He was very good in that. He was extremely good. He projects menace off the screen extremely well. Uh, whatever his name is, uh, apologist. I think the the biggest cop out for me was the Sonic. In all other ways, the setup for the story, the threat, I thought it was actually quite good. Nice nod back to the past. The Eternals were referenced again. I think they've had a name check in a David Tennant episode somewhere. I think it was Doomsday or Army of Ghosts. And and there were other things. There were the Guardians. There was the Celestial Toymaker. There were a few that they they name checked. I mean, I, I could live without references to the Celestial Toymaker, but that's a fairly minor quibble. No, I I, I enjoyed the um, the episode. I thought it was I thought it was entertaining. I thought it had a decent plot and that uh, everything was nicely resolved by the end of it. I thought that there was a reasonable amount for the companion team to do. 
And the news has just come through today that after the next special, both Graham and Ryan are going to be leaving. Well, Ryan is as animated as a block of wood, so I'm not really that sad to see him go. Bradley Walsh, I have to be be sad to see him go. No, I I think his plot plot came to an end with the whole resolution with Tooth Boy in um, Mm. the, the end of season 11. I think that was the logical point for him to go. Now he's just hanging around to be the idiot butt of jokes. Well, yeah, but at least you can act. I think when you give her a chance, then yes, can put in a decent performance. Uh, Ryan never has. He's been wooden from the word go, and I'm I'm not unhappy to see him depart. And whatever else I think about episodes in the season, that Jodie Whittaker has demonstrated that she can play the part. When she's given good material, which isn't often... I mean that that's always a proviso, but yes, yeah, she shows that she's got the um, the ability to play the part. So any problems with the episodes are not down to her portrayal; it's down to the the writing and the overall overlying plot arc for the um, or lack of it for the series. And that was the problem in season eleven. That's the problem in in season twelve. When she's given something to do, she shines, and when Yaz is given something to do, she shines. Graham can, but he's turned into a joke character. Ryan almost never did. Well, it's even worse on screen than Adric. That's the only level that I can pin it to. It's, it's painful to watch. There's just It's just being phoned in. And I don't know why Tozen Cole's been snapped up by America. I really cannot see what the appeal is. Maybe I'm missing something completely obvious, but it's it's not to me. You give me somebody like Pearl Mackey, snapped up by America, completely, I could completely understand that. Jenna Coleman, no problem. They leap off the screen. Tozen Cole? Yeah. Dunno. And it doesn't help that the TARDIS is massively overcrowded. Three companions has always been too many. Mm. Well, I don't think we've ever had this long with three companions. Two years worth of episodes. Seasons one and two. True. But even in those days with sometimes six, seven episodes to play with, you were still finding stuff for them to do. Well, I mean, in those days, uh, Susan and Vicky as the granddaughter figure were there to create a plot rather than resolve it because mm. they, they got, spent their whole time getting captured. But we're not here to talk about good Doctor Who. We're talk, here to talk about <laughs> season 12. Just before we move on from Can You Hear Me, the only thing, there was another thing that leapt out on me, which I thought was completely superfluous. All those scenes in Aleppo did absolutely nothing to advance the plot. Nothing at all. Yeah, and we've seen this right the way through season 12. Actually, we've seen this through the whole of the Chibnall era. It's the equivalent of a fanboy with a crayon. It's, oh, there's an interesting bit of history. I'm going to scribble my name on this and not actually do anything with it. I'm going to get Noah Khan and Ada Lovelace and just have them there to for a quick name check and not actually tell you very much about their stories, not develop them as characters, not bring them into an episode. It's just, I'm going to use this so that nobody else can scribble, scribble, pure territory marking in the way that some of the authors I may have mentioned in the past did during the, um, <laughs> the novel writing. I'm the first to write a doctorless novel. I'm the first to write a novel with a cartoon companion. I'm the first to write a novel that kills off a, um, a companion. It was, it was all fanboy territory marking at the expense of writing something good. Now, Ada Lovelace, Noor Khan, put one of those into a full episode where you can showcase their history and demonstrate why they're inspirational figures now. Yeah, that would be great, but that, that wasn't what we got for either of them. Mm. Noor Khan possibly a little bit more because you you did see that some of the work that she was doing during, during the war, but both of those deserved much more than they got. And as I say, it was pure territory marking. Can I think of a, a blatant an example as that? Oh, God, yes, Nefertiti on the oh, dinosaurs on the spaceship. That dreadful but was that a Chibnall? Yes, it was. Well, there you go. That, that's been a bit about the... Um, the Chibnall era that I haven't liked. Before we leave, can you hear me? There are a couple of bits that were, I think, very well done in terms of addressing mental health issues. And Ryan's was at, was actually the, uh, the bit of that that I thought was very well done. And his concern for his friend is recognising the, the problems that his friend was having and offering himself as support. They weren't well acted, but they were very good scenes and they were well-written scenes. Yaz's, I was less keen on because it was a, it was less obvious what they were trying to do. Are we supposed to assume that she was out on that road because she was wanting to self-harm or, or top herself or just running away from home? What was the whole thing about the, um, 
the yearly anniversary. Why, why did they do that? It was to commemorate that time, but what was it that, that was being commemorated? That was never made clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're going to flag up suicide awareness, perhaps, make it obvious that's what, that's what you're doing doesn't have to be graphic, but you have to actually work out that that's what he's trying to get at. So I didn't think that was particularly well written. The one that I hated was the whole Dr. Graham, you've raised a thing that I'm not comfortable with and I don't really know how to deal with, so I'm going to do a whole lot of introspection and wander over here and stare into the console and ignore the conversation. I really didn't like that. That was one bit that I didn't actually have a problem with because I thought about this at the time. It was a peculiar scene to start with, uh, but it ties in with the rest of the underlying theme of the issue of the episode. Of the four of them, the Doctor was the only one that could respond that way and not be viewed as an utter shit. If Yaz or Ryan had responded that way, it would have looked bizarre. Time-travelling alien, sort of making flippant of the fact that her reaction, she knows her reaction isn't brilliant. Then say that, be honest about it, say, I don't know how to react to this. Well, she did, but in a a doctorish way. That I could um, sort of deal with. It really didn't didn't come across well. I mean, possibly I view things slightly differently because... Well, you deal with this. Well, yeah, I've, I've been a cancer doctor. I've been a terminal care doctor. I've had to have those difficult conversations. There are ways to have them. There are ways that you can be sympathetic. And it is actually a perfectly valid thing for somebody to say, I actually have no idea how to deal with this and I have no idea how to respond to to you. But you can say whatever you want me you want to me. I, I will be a supportive audience. I can't give you the, the support back that you need, but I'm not going to take the piss out of you either, which is the way that came across. Mm. It wasn't a particularly well-written scene, don't get me wrong. I, I thought it was terrible. Mm. I thought it was absolutely terrible. Uh, but again, that it loops back to what we've said. The writing is just not very good. However, episode eight was The Haunting of Villa Diodati, which I have got a real mixed feeling. Oh, I about. really like that. Now, I will state quite openly, as an episode, it was pretty bloody good. Yes. The only thing, in fact, the main thing, my main problem with it, is that it stamps all over everybody that has followed the Big Finish Mary Shelley story. It was woven right through the Eighth Doctor arc. Mary Shelley was a companion. The whole uh, Villa Diodati thing was explored quite extensively by Paul McGann's Doctor, this just shits right all over it. And the fact that, I mean, it was there really just to, as you would say, mark territory. I'm going oh, to write see, this. This one I don't think was because they had a full episode with those characters. There was an interesting plot device in terms of what she was going to go on and write and how that tied in with the Cyberman, with the um, the creation of the Cyberman, the whole uh, thing with Shelley. The, his words are going to inspire people for hundreds of years. No, I thought what that worked really well. And frankly, I don't care that it contradicts a bit of um, a fanfic. I knew you were going to say fanfic. It, it is fanfic. It may be well-produced fanfic. It may be well-written fanfic, but it is fanfic. And it has been listened to by what? At most, a couple of thousand people compared to the millions that the audience of proper Doctor Who gets. Now, I I don't see any problem with that whatsoever, because if you start saying that, you then start saying, well, we can't contradict what Big Finish has has said. And they have churned out and at points vomited out so much stuff over the years that to say you can't contradict that would massively hamstring the, the, the plots you're able to make. So no, Fanfic has to stay fanfic. I don't. Well, I don't agree that it's fanfic. It's officially licensed. It's re, it's been referenced in the series. Paul McGann and his regeneration deathbed referenced his big Finnish companions. So they are, as far as I'm concerned, canonical. I don't think that that completely well, precludes from this you. Series, everything, including Mister Blobby, is canonical. So yes, I don't think you need to slavishly adhere to the fact that ah, the Doctor's met. Isaac Newton before in Big Finish. We can't do that. Basically, with a new Doctor, you're sort of a blank canvas. You don't need to reference the past, but you don't need to stamp all over it either. They could have quite happily had Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, Percy. They could have all been in it. Why that location? They were all friends. Because the whole Cyberman thing ties in with the 
creation of the the Frankenstein story. It's the inspiration behind it. But that point did not it did not come across to me at the beginning of the episode. They said, "Don't mention Frankenstein." I know the idea was to imply that this Cyberman was the inspiration for Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. That, to me, did not come across well at all. It, there wasn't a light bulb moment at the end of the episode where she decided, do you know what, that would make a very good story. It didn't, none of that came across. No, you see, I, I actually thought that that worked well. I thought it was fairly obvious by the end of the story, particularly that bit in the cellar where she was listening to him d- describe his conversion process. And you, you could see her in the background going, oh, okay, that's interesting. No, I, I, I thought that, I mean, it wasn't explicitly stated, but I mm. thought it was reasonably clear. I mean, aside of that, the episode itself was wonderful. It was well written. Um, I think Maxine Alderton, I think, wrote that one. The, uh, the only other thing that I didn't like about it is that it was another story that was turning the Cybermen into the Borg. Ah, now, I was going to get onto this. The Cyber Leader, which I'm going to park, I will discuss all of this when we get to episode 10. During the 1980s, we had a cyber leader with a bit of a personality. And I think a cyber leader with a personality works terribly well. That was an interesting take on... Yeah, because it's a Davros equivalent. Um, sort of. It's not really... Yes, I know where you're going. With it, without the whole creator yeah. aspect to it. But it's a boss with a personality and an ego, and that is Davros. But there was genuine menace about the Cybermen. Or, or that Cyberman. Yeah, for- and, and I think this Borg reinvention was much better than Nightmare in Silver. Oh, where- definitely. So that I did like. I quite liked it. Um, it just smacked too much of, well, wouldn't it be terribly clever to turn this into the Borg? Well, no, it wouldn't. The Borg were ostensibly a ripoff of the Cybermen anyway. They developed their own mythos. They developed their their own image and voice and the whole not fully cyber converted and still able to see that um, the person it had been underneath was what separated the Borg from the, the Cybermen. Getting back to The Haunting of Villadiadati, as with all period dramas that the BBC do, it was beautiful to look at. The sets were wonderful. The whole look and feel of it, the direction, it was all really good to look at. Of this series, that's up there in my top three. Yes, easily. Um, and... It really demonstrated the problem with Graham because his entire contribution to the episode was wandering around not realising that there wasn't an indoor toilet um, (laughs) and then being handed some sandwiches by somebody who is never referenced again. What were they supposed to... Were they they actual ghosts? Were there servants who'd ignored the whole we're going to turn the house into Castrovalva and not be able to get up and down stairs and things and we're just walking through and handing plates of sandwiches to random people. This, unfortunately, is another running theme throughout the Chibnall era. There are a lot of unanswered what, questions. not making sense. Well, unanswered questions, we don't... There's a lot of setup, and only 50% of it's resolved. And it is starting... Well, it's starting, it is wearing, and it's getting really quite irritating now, because we've never had it before. Well, not to this extent. No, I mean, there, there's occasional bits, and particularly in New Who... They've obviously put little hooks in that you can build stories around. So there's a, is it from Rose, where's it, where there's a, a picture of uh, Eccleston in, on the Titanic and little things like that where you can say, oh, yeah, well, obviously um, there have been other things that have that have happened that aren't on screen. And, you know, fine, rightly, that a couple of years time, Big Finish is going to come in and fill the blanks because <laughs> Geek can't stand any level of mystery. And this is a theme we will return to. Yeah, but the the drawing in rows, that was self-explanatory. The Doctor has had other adventures. Yeah. It's not setting something up and then you could probably do to know what this is all about and then just leaving it there and just never resolving it. The very worst example during the modern series is actually Rory in, is it the Big Bang? The one with the, with the Pandora. Pandorica. You know, he's just back to life. And the Doctor waves it away as, it's just one of those mysteries of the universe. And that's it. That was the worst example I can think of in New Who. But the the many deaths of Rory was almost as bad as the many deaths of Clara for being mm, irritating. Yes. And, you know, I have no problem whatsoever with companions not being killed off. No, no problem at all. Almost, there were, what, four that were killed off in the, proper, in the original series out of... Were there, 30-odd in, in 26, 27, yeah, there were, there were a few, yeah. 
So four out of that, oh, five, I suppose, uh, depending on whether you count Chameleon as a companion or not. Mm. Anyway, a handful, each one of which worked very well and had a good dramatic plot reason behind it. That was great. They're dramatic. They're scenes that people talk about right right to this day, even the one that doesn't exist anymore. So if you're going to kill off a companion, kill off the companion. Don't do this whole, oh, it's the death of the person that they turned into nonsense. Because do you know what? In 10 seconds time, I will not be the person that I am now. If you wipe that 10 seconds of memory, it doesn't equate to my death. It's the law of diminishing returns, because there's no shock value anymore. If a companion dies now, no one really gives a shit because you don't believe in. Yeah, it's, oh, well, they'll they'll come back as a raven or a puddle or whatever magic wand they want to wave Mm. this time. Um, The only time they've done it, and they stuck to their guns and I thought it was excellent, was Danny Pink. Yes. I think it worked very well. Now, that's not that I didn't like Danny Pink as a character. I thought he was superb. Um, I thought he and Clara worked really well together. And that made um, his death even more dramatic. Yes, I agree. For all Torchwood had its problems, when it killed off regulars, they stayed killed off. Mm. And it meant that you had scenes like... Ianto's death scene, like um, Owen, and, Owen Tosh. and Tosh dying together, were just absolutely heartbreaking, both of them, because mm. you knew that was a regular character that you had an established connection and knowledge of who you were not going to see again. I, th- I thought that was that was absolutely brilliant. There, there are very few things where I can say Torchwood did this better than Doctor Who, but that, that was absolutely one of them. Shall we move on to episode nine, Ascension of the Cybermen? This one I really enjoyed. I think of the entire run of Jodie Whittaker, this was my favourite episode. I loved Ooh. it, and I was left completely gripped for the finale. It was okay, but it was a complete mishmash of other stuff. Agreed. There was um, a lot of earth shock in there. The floaty cyberhead toclophane thing was <laughs> less so. Yeah. Absolutely awful. What else was in there? I honestly think it's fairly forgettable compared to the two that it sandwiched it. I think the thing that I liked most about it was actually the Cybermen, because they've not really had any sort of threat or menace on screen, not properly, since Earthshock. For me, the whole of New, New Who, they've been, you know... They've been very of, much Monster of the Week. Yes. In this episode, they've, they are front and centre killing machines. And that's what the Cybermen have almost always been. I mean, I was thinking back over this, and have the Cybermen ever shown any level of subtlety? Not really, but it's never been done in such um, a threatening, menacing way. This really works. I suppose the start of the wheel in space would be about the only thing. Hiding in the in the background at the start of the invasion is all, all Tobias Vaughan. Pretty much everything else is smash, smash, smash. Um, I mean, even things like the moon base, there's a degree of subtlety, I suppose, in the way that they take over the, um, the members of the moon base personnel and use them as puppets. But they don't really have an awful lot of choice about that because they're not able to come in and just smash their way through things. But that's pretty much what they do everywhere else. Um, and the sugar thing I noticed was they attempted to reuse in an episode of Sherlock, which was about the only time I've cringed at it. From Moonbase. Mm. Well, I mean, massive chunks of Sherlock I haven't watched because I thought it was awful. We'll get onto that in a separate podcast. The, the Cybermen in this, they were, again, I like the leader of the Cybermen. Uh, this is another one of those things that it was set up but never resolved. He opens one of the silos and starts torturing one of the new Cybermen. Mm-hmm. It's never alluded to again. Yes, there was no explanation for it. It yes, was quite unpleasant to watch. It's but... all explained in the in the tenth episode. Is it? Yes, that whole bit about um, we're going to remove all the organic from the, um, the Cybermen, and then the master comes along and says, "You mean you're going to turn yourself into robots?" That's what that's all about. Well, he's got a lot of work to do, considering there's about fifteen billion on that ship. Why? Do, no. Why? St- Start carving one or oh, and it didn't make any sense that bit. No, that bit kind of did, and it looked very nice. That, yes. that big cyber carrier looked fantastic. There was sort of Orion in there as well, which I don't know whether you've heard. I have, and I quite enjoyed. Yeah, massive. There is some fanfic I like. <laughs> Bloody fanfic. Anyway, 
we do a whole other podcast about how there's fanfic I like. Yes, we do. And it's called Oral Intercourse. And we do some proper Doctor Who as well. I fully agree that it was um, a sort of a jigsaw of of all those Cybermen stories put together. There was a level of unoriginality about it. I can't deny it. The way it was put together and the level of menace that the Cybermen came across off the screen. And I was only thinking this today. The Cyber Leader does a lot of talking. Do the Cybermen ever actually speak? I don't think they do. They do a lot of stomping around, a lot of shooting, but I don't think a single one of them speaks. Yes, they uh, not in this episode. They do in the, the final episode. I unfortunately will have to go back and watch that. Oh, no, the, the bit where they're chasing people through that city of tents and they're, right. they're giving directions to each other, they do speak to each other. Right. Again, it's another another episode of setting up. My friend Paul, who will be guesting on a podcast in a couple of weeks... He asked me what I thought after Ascension of Cybermen went out. And he was really hoping, because he knows how I feel about the whole Chibnall era. And he was delighted when I finally said that I really enjoyed it. I was excited for the week after. Ascension of the Cybermen was another setup episode. There was an awful lot in it set up. And you knew damn well that episode 10 was not going to resolve everything because there's just too much in it. Too many characters, really. In fact, some of them are quite wasted. But the end sequence where they discover Koshamus and he explains that there's a portal to the other side of the universe, it opens up and it's Gallifrey and the Master comes through. All of a sudden, it's all thrown at you. And for me, as a viewer, brilliant. How is this going to play out? Fantastic. I was genuinely excited for the whole week. I was looking forward to the episode. And then as the week wore on, I thought, there's no way they can possibly live up to the promise of episode 9 and episode 10. But th- this is very much a, a new Who trope. And right from season 1, there has been a massive dramatic build-up in the penultimate episode with some sort of huge cliffhanger thing that cannot possibly be re- resolved other than by some world-setting deus ex machina mess. That's what the, the final episode almost always is, mm. right Right back to, to season one. Now, it's gone from Russell T. Davis's bigger and bigger and bigger fleets descending on a space station and then a planet and then working its way up to the universe or whatever to the massively overcomplicated Stephen Moffat um, and and his setups where you blink for a second and you've missed a vital plot point and the whole thing makes no sense, to Chibnall's first season, enormous damp squib that almost wasn't a, a finale. It was so underwhelming. Mm. He's finally got something right in terms of the uh, the way New Who has been. He set up this giant impossible cliffhanger with a, a whole load of plot threads that can't possibly be uh, be married together and i i honestly thought that they'd um ha- having seen that that the, the ruth doctor thing was just going to be ignored i was a bit annoyed about that at the time i would far prefer that to have been the case rather than what we actually got shall we the move whole... on to episode 10 the timeless children mm, do i have to i'm afraid we do <laughs> What sure a mess. What? I, I think we both use the same phrase what a colossal fan wank um, I am massively, massively disappointed. Yes, I agree. Now, Classic Who was almost never self-referential, except for special occasions. Um, but they were pretty few and far between. It happened a bit more in the John Nathan Turner era, but prior to that, there was, what, the Three Doctors? D- Deadly Assassin, Invasion of Time, Ark of Infinity. Well, no, no they, they were revisiting places that he'd been to before and building up on their Time Lord mythos. But actually, each time you go to Gallifrey in classic era, it pretty much completely reinvented itself anyway. So the, yes, the Gallifrey of the war games was very different to the Gallifrey of the Three Doctors, which is very different to the Gallifrey of the Deadly Assassin. Okay, Invasion of Time is reasonably similar because it was only a year later. Ark of Infinity and Five Doctors, reasonably yeah, then, similar. Then you're getting into, into JNT mm. and the point of his era where he was doing quite a bit of looking back. So you've got the, the memory sequence in um, 
Resurrection of the Daleks and Attack of the Cybermen and Earthshock, and you've got the returning companions in Mordred Undead and the Five Doctors and then and the Two Doctors, and you've got Harks back to the past. You've got deliberate reintroduction of old monsters, whereas prior to that, other than the um, the Daleks and the Cybermen, there hadn't really been anything that had been brought back. Okay, there were a couple of Yeti stories, a few Ice Warrior stories. Was there anything else that had a, a returning villain? Santarans? Not really. Oh, yeah, Santarans, I suppose. And the Rutans were mentioned and only appeared on screen once. All of those stories, okay, they were bringing back a previous villain, but it wasn't harking back to minutiae in no. previous episodes. In um, Invasion of Time, you didn't get the Santarans banging on about what what happened in Time Warrior or whatever. There were self-contained stories that, that used the same setting in the same way as... Curse of Peladon isn't really referenced in Monster of Peladon other than the fact that whoever that terrible actress playing the Queen was was supposed to be <laughs> Peladon's granddaughter. Mm. The thing about New Who is that it was very light in the early days and a brilliant move really by Russell T. Davis. It was alluded to that there were things before and if you'd never seen them or didn't know, you wouldn't know and it wouldn't make any difference. But it would be a nice little reassuring Pat on the uh, back. Yes, so so things like the Autons turning up in yeah. in rows, and the, they came along, and they their nesting consciousness was a very good villain to to have kicking things off. You had that fantastic reminiscent sequence in the in the shopping centre, and then after that, you had little things like the Macra turning up in in Gridlock and the Cyberhead in Dalek and things like that. But all the mythos of the series, each separate series of New Who, up until we've got to Chris Chibnall. They've woven their own story arc in. Yeah, it's been little tips of the hat. It's not yeah. been massive reinvention to to reference a 30-second bit of directorial frippery 40-odd years ago. I'm really fucking furious about that. Because for years, I've, I've retconned that away as previous your, incarnations years, of Morbius. We've, we've all said, yeah, this was an idea that they had at the time. It never... It never came on. You ignore it like you ignore the rat. But it can you, be ignored ignore logically. Like it's not explicitly three... stated. Yeah. Well, there's the whole how far back do you go, Doctor. We ignore the fact that there are three different explanations of what happened to Atlantis. Mm. It doesn't mean that you have to spend an entire season cobbling together some horrible, intricate mess to explain why all three are actually the real situation. The whole of episode 10, the whole of this series has been all about saying, I like that bit of Brain of Morbius and this is how I explain it all. It's like the very worst fan-wanky excess from the Virgin novels yes. vomited onto the screen. I'm un- unfortunately, I'm forced to agree that this basically, this series, has now all been written off for me as the very, very worst example of fanfic in proper Doctor Who. Yep, agree with you completely. There's no originality whatsoever. It's like all the... Best bits, because they are all being packaged. I've said this on Twitter, but the they're all being packaged as wonderful original ideas. Now, they're just everybody else's wonderful original ideas smashed up and presented on screen in the most shocking way that they know is going to piss people off. That's not clever storytelling. That's just shock value. Yeah, and thinking about it, what had Chris Chibnall done before he came, came to Doctor Who? He'd, he'd written some Torchwood uh, to varying degrees of success. He'd written some Doctor Who, but he, he's best known for Broadchurch. Which I've never seen a one of, but it um, was top of the ratings, so I imagine it's quite good. Yeah, but that that landed at that was top of the ratings because David Tennant was in it and he'd not long left Doctor Who. Right. And, I, and I've only seen the first series of it because I wasn't interested enough to watch the rest. But it's an okay sort of cold casey murder mystery thing. It wasn't even the best one of those around at the time. There was a um, a TV show at about the same time called Mayday that was infinitely better written and much, much more interesting. There's a Harlan Allison thing called The Five, which did that whole cold case thing very well. So so Broadchurch is, is really built on the fact that David Tennant was in it and David Tennant was very hot property at the time. And it had a very good cast. So it had David David Tennant, had Jodie Whittaker. I think it had um, Olivia Coleman. It, it did, have, yes, yeah. So very, very good and competent and professional actors doing their best to salvage something that isn't a particularly brilliant story. It's just everything that was set up, it was all set up to bring into continuity... Uh, what, a 15-second clip from Brain of Morbius 
Yeah, forty-five years ago, and there were massive problems with the script. So um, the whole denouement depends on that death particle, which makes no sense whatsoever. But I'm prepared to give signs that makes no sense whatsoever. We've been fans long enough. Yeah. And Praxis, science in that doesn't really make sense, <clears> but <throat> I love the episode and I'm prepared to um, give the, the science a, a bit of a wide berth. But you've got this death particle that doesn't actually make sense, hidden inside the cyber reject thing, alongside the Siberian, whatever the hell that was supposed to be. And that made zero sense and it had didn't make no any explanation sense. behind it at all. And the, the whole of the end denouement is that I'm going to strap this death particle thing to a bomb. Now, the only way that the Doctor knows that the death particle is there and the, the big dramatic reveal that the, the broken Cyberman does to the Master about, I carry a death particle, isn't it terrible? What's her face? Julie Graham knows all about it. Some random refugee happens to know that um, the Cyberman's whole Master plan, because if she weren't able to info dump that to the doctor then there wouldn't be a denouement well no but the other thing is presumably she'd had some cozy little chat somewhere with the the cyber leader and he confined the entire plan to the (laughs) to this it is the only explanation yeah because otherwise how does she know about that this big secret that the um cyber reject is keeping also happens to be known by some random refugee but the other thing we've had this cyber leader ashad He's been built up over the past two, three episodes. You're wondering who is it? Why has he got this thing going on? Why has he got this grudge? And then quick conversation with the master, 10 minutes into the episode, pew, bye. You see, I actually quite liked that bit. Yeah, but Cause it, what the hell was he? Where's the resolution for the viewer who's invested in this character? Where is the resolution? It's just sort of, right, we're done with that now. We need to move on. That's not good storytelling. Well, none of it was good storytelling. There was some very, very good acting in there. It looked fantastic, uh, well, apart from the, the dreadful, dreadful Cyber Time Lords with their... Oh, my... Emperor Zerg from Toy Story, yeah, which I know you've never seen, but that is... metal frill and... The upside-down smile that Buzz Lightyear's nemesis in bloody Toy Story. That Those were ridiculous. I just I couldn't believe what I was watching. It could have it basically could have been Curse of Fatal Death. Well, they they've done the whole Curse of the Fatal Death thing. I mean, we we all laughed about how the sofa of reasonable comfort and all that sort of thing, what, <laughs> and what incredibly lazy storytelling it was to have the Doctor go back and um, and put things in place so that they'd. Um, Oh, in Spyfall. Yeah. Well, no, I, I was more thinking in the McCoy era about how oh, there yeah. were things that the Doctor had done before that made it possible for plots to be resolved. It was fairly little things, even in something like Battlefield, where where that was a very large chunk of the plot. There was enough other stuff for you to be able to forgive it. Whereas Spyfall, the entire res- resolution of the cliffhanger is, oh, yeah, the Doctor saw, the, saw this happen and popped back in time and fixed it all. So there you go. Press this button, buddy. It's the arrogance, and it is arrogance. I am going to rip up 57 years of continuity, canon, whatever you want to call it, because I want a black female doctor. I want the doctor not to be what everyone thinks he, she is. I'm going to introduce, introduce mystery into the character again. Well, you've certainly done that, but you've left a massive whacking gap as regards... But there, but there was mystery there before. There it was. was. It's not like we've ever had a definitive origin story for the Doctor. Or a definitive history of Gallifrey. No. They've always been, oh, it's a lot, we're in the midst of time, and there was there was Omega, and there was there was Rassilon, and there was the other, and we don't really know what's going on. And, it, and it, no, it's, there you go. This is what Gallifrey was right from the word go. But Rassilon was the one that started the Time Lords, not Tectium. And we all know this. It's it, So it's just there, so that... Uh, actually, it was a woman that started it off, and the Doctor started out as a black little girl. As if all this is somehow interesting and revolutionary, it actually just smacks of, I'm going to do this just because it's so dynamic. and. It reminds me a lot of the Paul Mars novels from the early BBC books, in that Iris Wild Time very clearly came across as his... Well, you've done quite well with this little program, but here is how I would have done it so much better. And it pissed me off then. It pisses me off now. Except that it's now been splattered all over proper Doctor Who rather than spin-offs. I would prefer to listen to Zagreus again. I would prefer to listen to the Pirates again than have to put up with that. 
unfortunately, I know it's a terrible old cliche, but I'm afraid timeless children, that is where Doctor Who died for me. Because we've turned the Doctor now essentially into a god. You know, the god of all time lords. I don't... The Doctor is somebody who ran away from Gallifrey because he was bored of the lifestyle. Wants to explore, wants to find out. He's not a god. He's not the creator of the Time Lords. It's never been explicitly referenced in the series proper that he is the other. The other, I don't think, has ever been referenced on screen. But it's just in fan mythology. And we sort of... It's one of those nebulous little things which could have been explored without actually revealing a definitive origin. This is And we've got the Celestial Intervention Agency by a different name with the Doctor as their lead agent. That terrible sub-matrix thing in Ireland that is there purely to, to fuel speculation in mm. between those two episodes and oh who is Brendan and and then it's oh well it, that was all a dream anyway isn't this marvellous aren't I clever I've never seen the Matrix honest it was just fan fiction it lacked any of the creativity and cleverness of the Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat eras it of was any era. No, I cannot begin to say how keen I am for the Doctor to regenerate with a completely new production team. Because um, I, th- I think actually we've now reached a point where it could do with a rest and a I, fresh start. I haven't been as unenthusiastic to see new Doctor Who since the Twin Dilemma. That was the last time I watched an end of a season and said, you know what, I'm not really sure I care what happens next. We're getting to a 1989 scenario where it's just starting to look inwards a little too much. It could do with a 2005 reset in a few years with a completely new team. What I, what I said after season 10 was that the person who should be showrunner is somebody who doesn't particularly like the programme. Mm. As you said the other day when we were messaging, this is what happens when you put a fan in charge of the show. Now, bear in mind, Russell T. Not Davis and Stephen Moffat. the two previous ones were yeah, fans. But, but they, they were skilled writers. Both of them have got writing chops. You say what you like about Russell T. Davis, it was quite sort of very family, fluffy, sometimes light-hearted Doctor Who. And say what you like about Stephen Moffat being a little bit overcomplicated. They're fans, but fuck me tight, they can write. They can write good dialogue, they can write good stories. Sometimes they hit harder than others, but pretty much any episode of all of that run You get the odd aberration, like Love Love and Monsters Monsters or In the Forest of the Night. But by and large, you can watch even the less good episodes you can watch. There's something in there to entertain. The dialogue will entertain you, even if the story doesn't. This lot, it's utter wank. And the thing that really got me about that final... There are lots and lots of things that really got me about that final episode. But I really thought the series had turned a corner. Mm, With Spyfall, with Villa Diodati, with... Praxius. We were getting good stories. We weren't getting brilliant stories, but we were getting good, solid stories. And I thought we turned a corner. I thought we were getting we were getting stuff that was going to be good and watchable and came across as a inherently professional production rather than just a giant pile of fan wank. But we've also because we've got now the the first black female doctor. Well done. We've we've got that. He didn't call himself the Doctor good. until no, he actually, left I Gallifrey. He was very good. Uh, no, I, I don't. You said I don't rate Joe Martin like you do. I, I don't. She's, she's a not a Doctor to me. But the whole police box thing—it doesn't make any sense. No. The whole TARDIS thing. The first Doctor stole the TARDIS and ran away. So now you're saying that before all that, so all this stuff that we've had about the other, none of that happened. And okay, the, the Doctor had his memory wiped, but it still doesn't but make did any sense. Saying that during Invasion of Time, Barusa didn't know that the Doctor was more than he he appeared to be and didn't think to mention it at all when there was all that, you're president now and this is your responsibility. This whole week, I've just been left with this empty feeling that the programme that I've loved for the past 40 years, it's just, it's not my programme anymore. Now we're down to some seriously low viewing figures. These are sub-McCoy viewing figures. Even when you factor in the overnights with the downloads each week and the, the iPlayer watches, there's still not much above McCoy. That was generally considered the nadir of Doctor Who viewing figures. 
And they're crying about this. All the BBC outlets are crying about how great it is. Yeah, we're a long way from giving this thing a rest. Complete faith in this Radio Times articles, crying about how brilliant it is. I think they've got to the point now where they're trying to convince themselves. Yeah. Because I don't know a single one of my friends who is a long-term Doctor Who fan, even those who aren't really fans of the series. They, they just they watch it, they enjoy it, but they've never really watched it before 2005. Now they're turning around and saying, I won't be watching this again. I haven't got a clue what's going on. I, I will watch it again in the hope that it will get better. Um, but this watched, is what we've said. We're not watching it now. In the hope that it would get better, and yeah. it did. I... Um, Echo what you've just said. We were getting to the point where we thought it had turned the corner, and now he's just completely... I mean, this is even worse. This is by far the worst one that he's written. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, season 11 was dull and bland right the way through, but with the exception of Rosa, we've done a whole episode on largely what I thought about Rosa. But with with that exception, there, there was nothing particularly good or particularly awful. It was just run of the mill a bit subpar, bland, meh. With this, we were lulled into a false sense of security by some really good episodes. And then pretty much right up until the final episode, it still looked as though there was going to be a good final episode leading into whatever's going to going to happen next, whatever's going to uh, go forward into the, into the new series. And it was just horrible. And even the fact that it looks like the Doctor's trapped in Sharda at the end of it. Yeah, it does. Didn't make it any better. It is a power-crazed fan with a crayon just scribbling all over whatever the hell he wants. And before this, no era of, of Doctor Who has sought to rewrite the past. They might have ignored it, mm. but they haven't deliberately gone out of their way to rewrite. I can't think of another example. Something may or may have happened in the past with Atlantis, but actually, I don't care. I'm going to do my story of it. The nearest that we got was the War Games, when the Time Lords finally turned up, and you actually got some sort of glimpse of what the Doctor's people were like. Up until then, it had all been in your imagination, but it was done well. Rewrite anything that had gone before? No, not at all. In the same way as when you finally got the Doctor visiting Gallifrey for a full story in the Deadly Assassin, it didn't rewrite what had got before. It it significantly added to it. Mm. And subsequent Gallifrey stories have added to that. My, my thoughts, they haven't completely red-penned it and said, well, actually, this this isn't what the, the story was and the real situation is this, this, this and this. And I just can't begin to express how pissed off I am that the 57 years of history has just been ripped up by somebody who, and I cannot get past him being on points of view or whatever the hell it was back in 1987. He looked like a twat then. He's come across to me as a real twat now, but just a twat with control now. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that BBC executives will look at the viewing figures, will actually sit down and go, what the hell have you just put on our screens? Mm. Out the door, don't let it smack you in the ass on the way back, and we'll get somebody who actually knows how to make television. I don't think they will. I think my my gut feeling, and because I don't know, I'm just speculating, but when Russell T. Davis had the reins, they, it was pretty clear that it was a big thing within the BBC. They they sort of invested in it. Yeah. And it carried on to an extent under Stephen Moffat, but because he had such a firm grip on it. I hark back to the 50th anniversary. The way he nailed that down around the world, he marketed it, he made a brand out of it. Doctor Who in 2013 was flying pretty bloody high. And, and now the, you, you get the, the feeling anniversary, that... It explained things that had gone on before. Little, little question marks, filling in the blanks. Mm. It didn't rip the entire thing thing up, throw it in the bin and say, well, actually, this is all shit. Um, I am doing so much better. Mm. But now I just get the feeling that we don't know who else to give it to. Chibnall, he's always wanted to give it to him. Yeah, yeah, just carry on. Just keep churning them out. One, one series every couple of years... Yeah, it don't matter. Fine. Yeah, ten episodes rather than two. Yeah, fine. If that's what you want, just we've got to do something with this thing. Just give it to him. I'm now getting the feeling that they're scraping the barrel in terms of executive producers because it's it was such a monster when Stephen Moffat had it to take that on. I can't think of anybody else actually within television who's got those sort of chops. So they've given it to a fan, thinking, well, he'll know what to do with it. 
be radical, be bold, be daring, and just forget about stories. Just be radical and daring and shocking. And the two things don't equate. Yeah. And so what they've got is a late-era JNT, where yes. what they need is a Verity Lambert. Yes, or very Rex, much so. Actually, pretty much any of them. Philip Hinchcliffe. Do Maybe you fancy coming back, mate? He's still about. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't he be marvellous? <laughs> I'd never actually thought of that until then, and that's my brain's just spewed that out. Fuck's sake. What have we ended up with? What have we got now? If they turn around and said tomorrow, the New Year's special is the last one. We're going to rest it. The relief. The relief. Because just now, it's not, as you've said, we're watching. We've gone back to the days of watching, hoping that it gets better. But after what we've just had on Sunday, it'll be a case of... There's not many ways left now that you can make it worse. I'm not sure that's a challenge I'd want to give. No. I actually agree with you, and I think it needs to go away for a while. And the the thing that that massively disappoints about, and the thing that I would have loved with all of this harking back to the past to actually have seen, is some of the previous regulars coming back in, maybe in little cameo roles, but mm. see what's happened with Ian, see what's happened with... Oh, I mean, we had Joe, didn't we? But yeah, um, see where Jamie is. See where Leela is. The whole Gallifrey see, thing. They destroyed Gallifrey pre-2005. I mean, and then that was retconned. Well, it was retconned in the in Day of the Doctor with a, a reasonable explanation that didn't stamp all over what was established in 2005. But in Timeless Children, Gallifrey is destroyed. And with this death particle thing... All organic matter on, on Gallifrey is now destroyed, including the corpses of the Time Lords. The Matrix, which we've always been told is sort of biomechanical, presumably that's been, if not destroyed, very badly damaged. So Gallifrey is as destroyed as it's ever been. And everybody got a nice fluffy glow when Gallifrey has ever popped up again. We got a fluffy glow in End of Time. We got a fluffy glow in Day of the Doctor. And we got a fluffy glow in Hellbent. And... I don't see any way back from this without some monstrous deus ex or some unwinding of time or something. And actually, the way it's gone, I would prefer Gallifrey just to go because, as I say, it's it's become Schrodinger's planet. It's become the Rory of planets where it's, it's dead and then it's not dead and then it's dead again. But I don't understand this obsession with destroying Gallifrey. It's an interesting plot device now and then. Um, it's the fan-wanky territory marking... I'm the one that finally destroyed Gallifrey and solved the mystery. I'm the one that gave the answers. Ignoring the fact that the mystery of the Doctor's origins, the mystery of Gallifrey, all of that is a very big chunk of why so many of us have loved the programme over the years. It's like with the Avengers back in the 60s and the final season when it was largely American money coming in and they said, oh, well, we, we need to make it a bit less quirky and British, ignoring the fact that it was the quirkiness and the Britishness that the, the Americans liked. It's kind of writing by committee, but it's a committee of one. We've reached the stage now where we're going to have to mark it out of segments of the key to time. And as I said last year, it's not the worst Doctor Who I've ever seen. But in contrast to what I said about it not being the most average Doctor Who, it's been massively up and down, but it's all been completely negated for me by that dreadful last episode. So are we marking the series or are we marking individual episodes? We'll mark the series because at some point the randomizer is going to chuck up one of these episodes. For, for the full series... I would say two. Hmm. Um, without the final episode, it would have been about a four. Yes, I agree. Um, That's exactly what I would have said. The final episode itself barely even qualifies for the um, the scanning ones, never mind a, a segment. And because of that terrible, terrible final episode, it drags the score down to two. Hmm. Things like Spyfall and Praxis save it from being utterly awful. But that, that final episode is just an absolute low point and it's replaced Love and Monsters as my most hated episode. <laughs> Comfortably. That is my least favourite episode of all time. So disrespectful. Ah. And on that, have we spilt enough venom about this? I'm sure it won't be the last time. No. Yeah. 
to round us off this evening, we have got a very special interview. We're joined by Rich Tipple, better known on Twitter as So Far From. He's part of the team that have manually recovered Daleks Master Plan Episode 2, and we've invited him on board to see if he can tell us all about how it's come about. I think that's a good question to start with, actually, Rich. How on earth did you and three of your mates decide that you were going to manually recover 36,000 frames? <laughs> Hi, Ken. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really know. It sort of just evolved. Um, I started it off myself, really. I just, you know, thought I'd uploaded a colorization to YouTube. It done quite well and I thought oh this will be fun I'll just you know I'll do some more um and a few people had said why won't you know you should do a whole episode or a whole story or something like that and I rather kind of naively thought yeah I'll give that a go (laughs) um and that was uh yeah that was January 2014 um and uh kind of as as it grew um, and kind of took on a bit of a life of its own, I soon realised I just wasn't going to be able to complete this task without a bit of help. So I uh, started looking for for people who were brilliant colorization artists first, and ideally uh, Doctor Who fans second. Um, and that's quite a hard remit to to fill, just actually. Um, but we got there in the end, and yeah, we managed to get uh, Kieran, Scott, and Justin on board. And uh, yeah, six years later, we we finished the job. Why did you pick that episode? I mean, it's a, obviously that's one of the most recent ones to have been discovered. What made you choose Dalek's Master Plan 2? Uh, well, I think it's just an absolute classic episode. Um, you know, you've got... It's it's really exciting, and it's got a real kind of... Um, uh, it's got a pace to it, hmm. more in line with the modern series. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to create uh, a sort of more accessible episode for kind of perhaps newer, perhaps younger Doctor Who fans who aren't used to watching stuff in black and white and, and find that a massive turn-off. So, you know, if I had, you know, decided to colorize an episode of The Sensorites, for example, as great as that story is, it doesn't quite have the same the same kick. Um, so it needed to be something that's quite exciting um, that I could rewatch several thousand times and not get bored of. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, it ticked so many boxes. It, you know, it's got uh, it's got Hartnell uh, at his at his pomp. I think um, it's got Nick Courtney. It's got Kevin Stoney. Uh, it's got Daleks with flamethrowers. It's got jungles. It's it's got it's got everything. You know, it, it's got an amazing cast, um, an amazing script, um, and all those set pieces like burning down the jungle that just were crying out as far as I was concerned for a little bit of colour. We've actually not long since just done Daleks Master Plan 2 on our podcast, and we were amazed actually watching it, how many moments there are in it that are that are lost in the photosnap reconstruction and the, the audio. Uh, the one that leaps to mind that both Simon and myself have commented on is Mavic Chen when he puts his hands on the bars and he's talking to Zephon, and he's quite sarcastic about it in a visual way. All that's lost. So good choice. We yeah, have- thank you. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Those bars were very tricky because we wanted to uh, to have the reflection of the of the the jungle burning kind of flickering on them. Um, so yeah, we didn't just go for white bars. We have them pink and and blue and green and yellow and red and all that sort of stuff going on. So a very challenging shot there, but I think one of the most iconic of the of the entire episode. I think is kind of Mavic Chen kind of behind bars, you know, and perhaps. Uh, uh, a nod to what might happen further on in the, in the story. Well, regrettably, I've not seen it yet. Uh, I have seen some of the trailer online, and it looks absolutely stunning. But it has been shown recently at Gallifrey One, hasn't it? How did that go down? It had. It went down really well. Yeah, I couldn't make it out there myself um, to LA, but uh, Kieran, who I worked with on this, flew out there from Australia um, and did us proud. Had a bit of a Q and A on stage and answered some questions, um, and then they they screened the episode. And I think there was about I think there was over a thousand people in the room. Um, and yeah, I just had some amazing comments, absolutely amazing comments. Um, a few people said you know they couldn't they couldn't believe it was colorization. It looked it looked like it would been shot that way, which is the sort of standard that we had been aiming towards. But to hear people kind of say it and appreciate it means means the world um and my twitter feed are just lit up really with people saying nice things you know and it's a lovely community online um 
and everyone just seemed to understand because I was very conscious that it's a very divisive thing, colorization. You know, there will be people who just hate it. It doesn't matter what standard you achieve. They just hate it. They think this stuff shouldn't be touched. But, you know, I just, I went in there. I was expecting a fair amount of flack for having done it. Um, but actually, the the reaction was overwhelmingly positive, um, and people have been really kind with their with their comments. Um, and now I just hope we can get it to a larger audience. Well, Simon and myself have been very positive about colorizations over the years, and we, both of us would happily see every episode of Black and White Doctor Who colorized. We think that it just brings a a depth to it, and it, it does bring things to life. But have you had any negative feedback? I'm, I'm, what I've seen online has been overwhelmingly positive, but have you had any uh, that's, that's really slated you? Uh, touch wood, I've not seen any <laughs> massively negative comments. I've read a couple of things saying colorization isn't for me, but I understand why this project was done, um, and that's fine. You know, um, I think a lot of people are willing to live and let live a little bit, as long as the black and whites are always there for people to watch. Yeah. I don't think there'll be a problem. Um, so no, I haven't had a single kind of, you know, hang him <laughs> comment yet, um, which is, which to be honest, is, is very lucky because I know people care deeply about this stuff and, uh, emotions can run high, especially behind a keyboard online, but no, everyone's been really lovely so far. Oh, fantastic. As I've said, it's, it's around 36,000 frames that you've had to manually recover, uh, recolor. How did you go about doing it? Did you arbitrarily split the episode into chunks or did you do just random pieces and, and slot them together or how did you plan it out? Well, when I first started, I just kind of went from the beginning, really. I did the titles and then I did that opening shot of um, Hartnell looking through the, uh, walking through the jungle and looking through the reeds at the Daleks in front of the TARDIS and all of that sort of stuff. But as we kind of went on, we developed a bit of a system. So I reckon, you know, I'm... Mm, not sure what percentage would be but i reckon we got maybe 40 percent of this episode done in the last 12 months so even nice. though it took six years it was really fitting it in around life and once we'd got a really good system in place we absolutely it just we flew we honestly flew we'd um we, we'd broken the episode down into shots we'd assigned each shot to different people uh, more often than not um kieran would take the jungle stuff um you know, um, and help out with a lot of the skin tones. Scott would do the, you know, this, that. We, we, we all sort of had our own kind of sections to work on. Um, but that said, we had colour palettes for each character. We had exactly what shade of blue we needed to use for Mavic Chen's top. You know, we had all these colour decisions made so that we could keep the consistency throughout because that was the one thing we didn't want changing too much. There's a few things in there, if you look really, really closely, that are wrong. Um, and... I think a lot of that's because, you know, after six years, people haven't really seen my colorization work for six years because I haven't put anything out there because I've been working on this project. But I was looking back at stuff that I was doing six years ago and I just thought I couldn't possibly share that. It wasn't good enough. So I just had to go back and start again and and improve it. Um, and, and it's definitely for the best, you know, and we all learned off each other and we had this amazing system and it was like clockwork by the end. We we're like a really well-oiled machine um, and it was quite amazing. One of the things we, we did is we, we spent a lot of time restoring the print. So when you get a chance to see this, and I'm hoping um, everybody will at some point, I hopefully you'll, uh, you'll be able to actually kind of look at the finer details. We've done so much to improve the quality of the image. Every single frame has been scrubbed up. Um, and there's, for example, uh, I've replaced a lot of the titles. So when it says um, written by Terry Nation, for example, Day of Armageddon and all of that stuff, um, I've manually gone into those frames and I removed all the text, created masks and tracked them over the faces and completely rebuilt the frame and then added the text back on top using kind of characters so that I could make really crisp kind of vectors out of them. You know, and then there's other things like a little kind of uh, you get a little a bump in the in the film, that sort of stuff. We've gone in, we've removed it, we fixed it. There was a camera that came in at one point and sort of partially blocked out part of a Dalek. I rebuilt the part of the Dalek that was missing and tracked it back on top, so you, you would never know that that happened. So there's those little bits of kind of restoration that have gone into the print as well that are really important. And I think you need that because colorization is only really as good as um as the kind of footage it's sitting on so i take it that you rebuilt the shop first and then colorized it yes i did yeah yeah, yeah. 
listening to that, that sounds like even the stuff that the restoration team put out on the official release, still you you still had even more work to do on it, even after they'd got their hands on it. Yeah, they do amazing work. They do absolutely phenomenal work. Um, you know, these prints, I, I've got a, a few Doctor Who on 60 millimeters myself. You know, I know firsthand how um, how dodgy this, this material can be. You know, um, all the bumps and scratches and dirt and flicker and frames and all sorts of stuff, you know. Um, and they do, they've done an absolutely brilliant job on it. Um, but we were able to kind of take it that extra 5-10% um, with probably technology available now that they simply didn't have at the time when this came out you know these things move it move on incredibly quickly yeah. so yeah we we've you know we've removed a lot of the noise some of the grain we've rebuilt some of the titles and things yeah we, you know i think we've done you know we've, we've put a lot of love into this to make sure it really scrubs up as well as it could to be honest it's coming across just from watching the trailer um has the bbc been involved or shown any interest or blessing or giving you their blessing at all um well no not yet it's um i'm i'm waiting on i'm waiting on news um and i should know something by by monday hopefully so there will there will be news um this weekend um on on where this is going to go next um obviously you know um me and the team own the 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 color copyright but the bbc very much own doctor who um i've had a lot of people ask me to just stick it on YouTube, you know, and mm. <laughs> never ever going to do that in a thousand years. Um, not least because YouTube's compression would uh, break my heart, um, but but also because I've got no intention of uh, of breaking the law, upsetting the BBC, um, you know, doing anything to upset the Terry Nation estate. You know, there's a lot of things here. You know, you need to be sensible. It's a fan project, um, and uh, it's it's massively taken off. Um, there was a small piece in SFX magazine um, this month about it. We had a premiere in LA. I've done podcasts. It's been so much fun. It's been so much fun. And I've been invited on BBC radio to talk about it. So that was kind of quite nice, but we're still, you know, waiting to see what it is they want to do with it. They might say, thanks very much, but you know, this isn't something we want to touch at the moment. Um, or they might, you know, they might have an idea of what they want to do with it. Um, and if they do, that's great. I'd love to find a way to totally legitimately get this out to a wider audience. Well, from a viewer's point of view, I would pay good money to see uh, not just this episode, but several more. Um, the the obvious logical question would be, have you got any more in the pipeline? Is this something that you would like to carry on with? Let's <laughs> just say the wind is blowing in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, think, uh, I think we're having a bit of a break at the moment. I think we're all to a man pretty exhausted um getting this over the line we set ourselves the the deadline um, and agreed that we would show this at galley uh gallifrey one before it was finished so we had a massive you know uh, looming deadline um, which always helps uh, but i think you know, it wore us out and we're knackered um and i think we would all like to do it again i think most of us would like to to do something else um but yeah i think we need need five minutes i think my wife would kill me as well if i suddenly started taking up the evenings doing another episode but yeah well rich i know that you've got a busy home life and uh we're very grateful for your time so thank you for giving us this short interview but it's very much appreciated i'm sure that you're feeling it from around the world and i hope that this uh, leads to better things for doctor who fans i would love to see the colorizations continue thank you very much Thanks, Ken. It's, uh, it's been lovely to chat to you. That was Rich Tipple, one of the chaps behind the recolorization of Dalek's Masterplan 2. Hope you enjoyed that. I think we've got a little bit of a coup getting him on board, so thanks, Rich, for your time. I've only seen the clips that are online, and it looks incredible. It's not my favourite episode of Hartnell Doctor Who, largely because Katerina is doing her stop poses throughout, but the colourisation looks unbelievably beautiful. I, I can't wait to see that entire episode. I can't wait to see what they do next because it is just wonderful, wonderful work. And I don't care what episode they do next. We shall be back next week with episode 42 when, unsurprisingly, we'll be looking at The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye now. The Exton Moss experiment featured Simon Exton, Ken Moss and Rich Tipple. About Time was performed by Dalekian. 
All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.